is loves to watch is called the middle. Have you ever watched that? Oh, yeah, it's a favorite. All right, I was wondering. I never see it, but um, she likes it. I guess the mother is a lady who used to play Raymond's wife, right? And everybody loves Raymond. She's a Christian. And during season six, the teenage daughter walks into her parents' bedrooms with a question and is immediately distracted by her mother's pants. She says, are those maternity pants? Oh, yeah. And the wife says, no, they used to be, but now they're my holiday pants. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah, she remembers it. After today, you all may need maturity pants when you go home for all the food. We're going to talk about Thanksgiving today, David's song of Thanksgiving. But it's good for us to be reminded about what the pilgrims endured. So I'm going to read to you a little history about the pilgrims. In August of 1620, Puritans from England left their homes and the comforts they had known to begin a new life in the new world. They boarded two small ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, to pursue religious freedom in America. Not long after leaving, the Speedwell developed leaks. Most of her passengers and crew transferred over to the Mayflower before the Speedwell turned back. A total of 102 pilgrims suffered through 67 days of rough sailing before they arrived at Plymouth Bay in November. There's nobody to greet them, no stores for supplies, nor homes to buy. They endured the hardships of a very cold winter and the perils of sickness. At one point, only six were well enough to care for the sick and dying. By March of the following year, only 51 of the original 102 were still alive, and it would be another two years before a ship arrived with more supplies. Nonetheless, these brave pioneers celebrated their newfound freedom to worship as they desired and thank God for his gracious provision. This may have been a difficult year, but the fact remains we still have much for which we can be thankful. Even in hardships, we can rest on the promises of God's presence and be thankful for what he has done for us. Has this been a year of turmoil for you? Bad things happen? Here we come to Daniel or to 2 Samuel. David's in the midst of turmoil. He writes this song towards the end of his life. He talks about four problems he is enduring. Yet he is still thankful for God's provision, God's promises, God's presence, and God's protection. David thought retirement would be a time of rest and relaxation, but it wasn't. It's full of turmoil. And he finds rest in the fact that God takes care of him and he is absolutely dependable during our times of turmoil. Even though he's suffering much, he'd still be thankful. Let's turn to 1 Samuel. But we're starting at verse, or chapter 20 there. Let's look at a summary of the turmoil. We're going to have four major problems David endured. Now, we're sort of skipping ahead. We'll come back and finish talking about David and Bathsheba and other problems with Absalom. But here we're going to jump ahead and look at David's psalm of thanksgiving. But let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for your goodness towards us. We're so thankful for what you've allowed to happen in this past year, Lord. Some of things have been joyful, some have been full of turmoil, Lord. But nevertheless, you are still a faithful God that we need to trust in you. And as you look at what David endured, 
And how he still remained thankful to you for his, your guidance and protection and provision, Lord. That we'll ever be thankful to you as well, Lord, for the same reasons. Help me, Lord, as we teach your word this morning. Help us to apply the principles from which we learn. And that we can really truly be thankful for what we've experienced. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This is good. First of all, the troublemaking of Sheba. The events here take place right after Absalom's revolt. David sends out his army. Absalom is killed. The army is destroyed. Remember, David had to flee Jerusalem. On his way back, he's being escorted by the tribe of Judah. Because David's from the tribe of Judah. As they're nearing Jerusalem, the ten northern tribes come and they are complaining. Why are you leading the David? We should be doing it. We all should be doing it. So there's a big fight argument going on. Period of contention. And one of the ringleaders was a man named Sheba. We see Sheba's uprising here. Let's look at the conspiracy in verse 1. Now a worthless fellow happened to be there whose name was Sheba, the son of Beriah. I'm sure that's Beacon, is how you pronounce that. I'm sure that's Beriah, never mind. A Benjamite, and he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. And the men of Judah remained steadfast in their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. Now Sheba is upset. One reason is because he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And that was where Saul came from. So David probably didn't like David. I'm sorry. Sheba didn't like David. Now he's called a worthless fellow. King James has son of Belial. New King James says rebel. This word refers for someone who is worthless, useless, good for nothing. So he's a worthless fellow and he's stirring up controversy, trouble. Notice David's concern here in verse 4. So the king said to Amasa, call out the men of Judah before me within three days and be present here yourself. So he has a new general, Amasa. What's interesting is Amasa was Absalom's general that led the revolt against David. But David puts him in charge of his army. He probably wants to bring healing to the people. And also, we're told that in chapter 17, verse 25, by the way, in chapter 19, verse 13, Asma, Amasa, I mean, replaces Joab. So Joab is fired, he's kicked out, and this causes problems with Joab because he's not too happy. So Amasa is supposed to get this army, but he's slow in getting them ready. David knows that Sheba has much more time. He can start more, cause more problems than Absalom did. But we see Joab's cruelty. Amasa is taking too long to secure the troops, so David puts Abashai in charge, and he takes David's elite troops and goes fights against Sheba. My problem is Joab joins with Abashai because they were brothers. In the course of time, we see Joab's cruelty where he murders Amasa. Probably because Amasa took his place, and plus he was on Absalom's side. So he sneaks up there, and he pretends to give him a kiss, and he stabs him, and he kills him. It was interesting, they were brothers. I'm sorry, they were their cousins, Abdur, Amasa, and Joab. And it's interesting that the army puts Joab back in charge. It isn't David that puts Joab back in charge of the army. The soldiers do. They trust and they respect Joab, so they put him back in charge. And Joab goes after Sheba. 
Look at Sheba's undoing in verses 14 through 22. Sheba holds up in a place called Abel. And Joab attacks the city, puts up siege works, is getting ready to destroy the city. But we read of a wise woman from Abel. Look at verses 16 through 22. She sees Joab there, and she knows the city is going to be destroyed, and everyone's probably going to get killed as well. So she appeals to Joab to change his mind. Look at verse 18. So she spoke, saying, Formerly they used to say they will surely ask advice at Abel. And thus they ended the dispute. So Abel is a place known for wise counselors. And this wise woman is probably a judge in the city. So she has a proposal for Joab. If you stop attacking the city, who do you want? Who's here that you want? He said, well, we want Sheba. She says, what if I cut off his head and throw it over the wall? Does that satisfy you? And Joab says, sure. So she goes to the men. Look there at verse uh, 22. The woman wisely came to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Berkai, and threw it to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city to his own tent. So here we see the principle of appealing. You don't like a decision? You can appeal it. She goes to Joab and says, yeah, what should I keep you from attacking the city? Well, I want Sheba's head. Okay. She cut up his half and threw it over the wall. <coughs> the rest of that chapter, verses 23 through 26, there's a new tally of leadership. David has to reorganize because Absalom's rebellion put everything in uproar. So that verses 16 through 20 talks about all these, or 23 through 26 talks about all these people he puts in charge of things. What's interesting, he keeps Joab as the general. David is afraid to confront Joab. Twice he's murdered someone. He should have been put to death. But for some reason David is afraid to deal with Joab and Joab is a thorn in the side of David's flesh for the rest of his life. This is another turmoil. Turmoil with Sheba. Now turmoil with Joab. He can't trust this guy. But he's there and he can't get rid of him. Then we have the transgression of Saul in verse 21. More problems. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. Remember who the Gibeonites were? Chapter, chapter 9 tells us that story. They come into the promised land, they're conquering the land. The Gibeonites deceived Joshua into thinking they're from far away. They're actually their neighbors. So Joshua makes a pledge to keep them safe. And God says, since you made this pledge, you've got to keep it. You made an oath, we've got to keep it. <clears throat> 400 years later, Saul breaks this oath. And God punishes Israel for what Saul had done. Remember, Saul's been dead for 30 years now. And probably because the Gibeonites lived in the area of the tribe of Benjamin, probably Saul wanted to have more room for his men, so he probably killed a lot of Benjamin, Gibeonites. So God says, well, you guys made an oath of them. You've got to keep your promises and your oath. And therefore, there's a famine in the land for three years. The people are suffering. David inquires of God, what do we got to do? And we see the problem in verses 1 and 2. And the plan is, well, we need to kill seven of Saul's descendants. Gibeonite says, we don't want money. Just take seven of Saul's descendants and hang them. So David does. 
We see the meeting with him in verse 3 through 6. But in verse 7 through 9, we see David's mercy. Look at verse 7. But the king spared Mehibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord, which was between them, between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. Remember we talked about that back in chapter 9? David made a promise to Jonathan to take care of his descendants. Mehibosheth's the only one left. And David showed grace to Mehibosheth. We talked about this. So some people believe this event probably takes place between Mehibosheth and Absalom's rebellion. Or maybe it happened towards the end. We really don't know. We're not told. But you see David's mercy. He kills those seven men. Or gives them to the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites kill those seven men. But David spares Mehibosheth. Number three is up there. It should be the protective mother in verses 10 through 14. We talked about this a couple of mother days ago. Rizpah loses two sons. And their bodies were remaining there after they were killed. They weren't buried. She spends the next few weeks, possibly months, protecting them from being eaten by wild animals. Remember that story? David hears what she does. He is impressed and he takes the bodies and buries them. But we see this protective mother and her love and concern. And look at the end of verse 14 there. It says, After that, God was moved by prayer for the land. We see David still a man of prayer, praying to God. Then in verses 15 through 22, we see the triumphs of the four. David's still at war with the Philistines. He thought he conquered them, but they're still causing problems. And we see four descendants of Gath. They're possibly Gath's or Goliath's brothers. They're from Gath. And we see how David is protected, even though during this time of turmoil. Start reading at verse 15. Now when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David sent down his servants with them, and they fought against the Philistines. David became weary. Then Ishbi Benab, who was among the descendants of the giant, that's Goliath, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels, is about seven and a half pounds of bronze in weight, and was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with this, us in battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. David's getting older now. He couldn't protect himself. So he says, David, no more battles for you. You go home. Now it came by after this that there was a war again with the Philistines at Gob. Sends Sabichai, the Hushalite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. And there was war of the Philistines again at Gob, and Elnana, the son of Jerob Ogrim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear is like a weaver's beam. Now there's a little bit of problem here. As we're told in 1 Samuel, who killed Goliath? David. But now here we're told Elanan killed Goliath, which is true. Is this a contradiction in Scripture? No. If you have a King James Version or you have a New King James Version written in italics, it's three words. What's that, those three words there? Brother of Goliath. So there's two explanations. Either this giant was a brother of Goliath or there are two persons named Goliath. No contradictions in Scripture. It was, probably, it was a different Goliath that was killed, or a different giant that was killed. Verse 20 There was war at Gath again, 
And there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also had been born to the giant. When he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So here David still has more turmoil. Four giants keep coming after him. One giant you think would be enough. There's turmoil here. And David now writes this song of thanksgiving. Remember the four turmoils he had? First there was tribal conflict with Sheba. Then there was personal conflict with Joab. Then ethnic conflict with the Gibeonites. And now national conflict with the Philistines. Even though he has all this turmoil, he still takes time to thank God. This song is almost identical to Psalm 18. If you were to compare the two, they're almost exactly identical. But think about the turmoils you've experienced this past year. Maybe the death of a loved one, financial setback, sickness, healing, I mean illness. Life is full of turmoil. Yet David still is thankful to God. Let's see what he's thankful for. Number one. He has thanksgiving for being saved from his enemies in verses 1 through 32. <coughs> Excuse me. What we're going to do is we're going to look at these verses, we're just going to read through them and make a few observations. Verses 2 through 7 talks about God's protection. I want you to notice the words David uses to describe God's protection in these verses. Let's read. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord, and the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You have you saved me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompass me, and the torrents of destruction overwhelm me. The cords of Sheol surround me, that's death, and the snares of death confronted me. Yet in my distress I call upon the Lord, as I cried to my God. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry for help came into his ears. Here we see, first of all, God's protection of David. Against all of his enemies, God protected him. Let me read some insights from Warren Wiersbe, his commentary. He said, deliver is a key word in this song. Verses 1, 2, 18, 20, 44, and 49 uses this word. New American Standard uses the word rescue. Rescue and deliver is the same word. And it carries with it the meanings of drawing out of danger, snatching, taking away, allowing to escape. How many times was David almost captured by Saul, but God snatched David out of danger? God does the same thing for us. He delivers us. It says, David began by praising the Lord for who he is, a rock, a fortress, a deliverer. Images that certainly came out of David's years in the wilderness when he had he and his men hidden caves and natural fortresses. God is my rock can be translated my rock like God. The image of the Lord, the rock, goes back to Genesis 29 24. God is his rock, his protection. So the rock reminds us of strength and stability. 
that which is dependable and unchanging, no matter how David's enemies tried to destroy him, he was always guided and protected by the Lord. God was a shield around him and a deliverer in every time of danger. He goes on to say, the image of a rock gives way to the image of a flood. This leads to the vivid picture of a storm. While he was exiled in the wilderness, David certainly saw many rainstorms that transformed the dry riverbeds into raging torrents. No matter what the season, David was constantly fighting a strong current of Saul's opposition. So David said, man, he came at me like a flood in the wilderness. Ever been in a desert when there's a big storm? These dry gullies fill up with water in a matter of hours. Now, it doesn't take that long. I remember once we were at camp down there by um, Hemet, California, which is by Palm Springs. I parked my car by this gully. It was dry. It was about four feet deep. It started raining. Within an hour or two, the water was rushing over the sides of the gully. I had to move my car for I was going to get my car swamped. That's how quick these waters can come and flood the area. And that's what David's talking about. Saul's oppression felt like a flood. He said, I'm near death. <clears throat> so here he thanks God for God's protection for him. Verse 6 talks about the snares of death. That talks about the hunter's snares. Try to trap birds and animals. Saul was constantly laying traps for him, sending out spies looking for him. So we see God's protection. Verses 8 through 16 talks about God's power. Now again, as we read these verses, See how many words are used to describe God's power. Words from nature. Verse 8. The earth shook and quaked. Foundations of heavens were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. He's talking about God. Smoke went up out of his nostrils. Fire from his mouth devoured coals and kindled by it. He bowed in the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He appeared on the wings of the wind, and he made darkness canopies around him, a master of massive waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. From the, then the channels of the sea appeared, the foundation of the world were laid bare, and by the rebuke of the Lord, the blast of his breath of his nostrils. Here we see God empowered David to be delivered. And David is describing Saul's, or his deliverance from Saul and his enemies as acts of nature. God is seen in earthquakes, storms, thunder, lightning, darkness. It leads us to believe if God's so powerful enough to control the nature and control the earth, isn't he powerful enough to take care of us? David's saying God's deliverance is like these storms that come out of nowhere. They're powerful. God protects me. God has the power to protect me. In verses 17 through 25, he talks about God's provision. It's because of God's mercy. Look at verse 17. He sent from on high. He took me and drew me out of the many waters, out of the floods. He delivered me from my strong enemy from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. How many times has David trapped him? The one time he was trapped between Saul's army and the cliff, 
That's a tight place. God delivered him. And, so, and here David saying, I've been put into a broad place, like a big plane. I was delivered. I got all this room around me now. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Underline that. Why did God rescue David? Because he delighted in him. And God delights in us as well. The Lord has re- rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not acted wickedly against my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless toward him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness before his eyes, my cleanliness before his eyes. God rewarded David. God counted David as righteous because David believed in God. David obeyed God. He wasn't perfect. God didn't declare him righteous because of his works. God declared him righteous because he believed in God. Same way Abraham believed in God and was declared righteous. And here's what David was saying the same thing. You counted me righteous because I believed in you, Lord. I believe that you would take care of me. I believe that you would make me king. And therefore, since... I'm declared righteous. I'm going to obey you, Lord. I'm going to live a pure and holy life. I'm going to do things that please you. And though you are pleased with me, I'm going to please you as well. So God delivered David from his enemies all because of God's mercy. And David kept God's ways, God's ordinances, God's statutes, and God rewarded him. And David believed God, and he became righteous. And he was obedient to God. Does that describe salvation? We're saved because we believe what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Our works don't save us. But we're thankful for salvation. And therefore, what are we supposed to do? Good works. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 tell us. For by grace you're saved through faith. Now yourselves, the gift of God. Now it works. Lest anyone should boast. And verse 10 says, we are chosen because of, of, to work for him. We are now to be working for God after we are saved. And verses 26 through 28 talks about God's perfect justice. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the perverted or twisted, you show yourself astute. See that word astute? The King James has the word shrewd, unsafe. The word means cunning. With the twisted people, God is cunning. Those who twist God's word, twist the way we're supposed to live. And God takes care of them. His justice is perfect. He says in verse 28, And you save an, un, an afflicted people, but your eyes are on the potty whom you obeys. Here again we see God's justice is perfect. He shows mercy to the kind and the blameless, but to the wicked, because of their pride, they won't receive God's mercy because of their sin. Then God's proven dependability we see in verse 29. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Here we see God takes care of David and empowers him so he can leap over a wall when he's fighting his enemies. Doesn't that remind us of Philippians 4.13? What does that tell us? My God strengthens me. God takes care of us. 
God's proven them dependability. All these things David is thankful for because God saved him from his enemies. Secondly, we see a thanksgiving for being set over his enemies. God not only delivered David from his enemies, but set him over his enemies as well. Here we see he's a warrior for God in verses 31 through 46. God is a strengthener. Verse 31. Let's start at verse 30. For by you I can run upon a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? God is my strong fortress, and he sets the blameless in his ways. He makes my feet like hinds feet, and sets me on high places. He trains my hands for battle, so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your help makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and I did not turn back until they were consumed. And I have devoured them and shattered them, so that they did not rise, and they fell at my feet. We'll stop there. Verses 31 through 35, we see God is a strengthener. God strengthens David. Again, God describes a rock, a strong fortress. He gives David strength. He gives him the sure-footedness of a deer and the strength to bend a bow of bronze. God strengthens David, the warrior. Verse 36 and 37, we see God is a shield. He protects David. He keeps his feet from slipping and falling. Also, God is subduer, verse 38 through 41. Verse 41, or verse 40 says, For you have girded me with strength from battle. You have subdued under me those who arose up against me. You have made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. God subdued David's enemies and defeated them. Also, God is a supporter. Verse 42. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he didn't answer them. Here's David's enemies appealing to God to help them, but God didn't. Notice what David says, I pulverize them as the dust of the earth, and I crush and stamp them as the mire of the streets. You have also delivered me from the contentions of my people. You have kept me as head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. Foreigners pretend obedience to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart. They come trembling out of their fortresses. So God supports David. God gave him victory, not only from his enemies outside, but his enemies from within, Absalom and Joab and others. Also, David is a worshiper of God, verses 47 through 49. He says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be God, the rock of my salvation, the God who executes vengeance for me and brings down people under me, who also brings me out from my enemies. You even lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. God is David's savior. Because of David, because of God, David triumphed over his enemies. And God is also a sovereign or a king to him. Look at verses 15 and 51. Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations. 
God is David's sovereign. You know, he's over him. And I will sing praises to your name. Here's David's testimony among the unsaved and among the saved people. He, as God, is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed. That's probably the Messiah. To David, his descendants forever. So God is described as a sovereign king and he'll take care of David and David's descendants forever, showing loving kindness. Which reminds us of the Davidic covenant we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because of all that God had done for David, David sings praises to God among the nations. Weirdly sums all this up. Now we just read. <clears throat> As you review this psalm, you can see what it was that thrilled the heart of David. He saw God and mentioned him at least 19 times. He saw God in the affairs of life, both the happy occasions and the storms that came. He saw God's purpose in his life, in the nation of Israel, and rejoiced to be part of it. But most exciting of all, in spite of all the troubles David had experienced, he still saw the gentle hand of God, molding his life and accomplishing his purposes. The enlarged troubles and and he prepared him to take large steps you know, and enlarge the place that God had prepared for him. So David was taking all these tight places and God enlarged him. And God used him greatly and David's all thankful for this. Now how do we apply this? Well, there's four significant things we want to look at. First of all, when times are tough, God is our only security. We saw that in verses 2 through 4. David describes God as a place of safety and refuge. Even during times of turmoil, God is concerned about us. Look at verse 7. Remember what David said in verse 7? In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry for help came into his ears. Isn't that true of God? During our times of troubles, we can cry out to God, and he responds to them. God hears our prayers. That's a comforting thought. That's one great thing to be thankful for, right? God does answer prayer. You know, our enemies deal harshly with us. And our enemies can be described as financial problems, physical problems, personal problems, government problems, you know. But God will support us. And why does he support us? Why does he rescue us? Look at verse 20. Last part of verse 20, he rescued me because he delighted in me. What an encouragement. God delights in us. We're told other places we're the apple of God's eye. God loves us. So next time you're in the midst of turmoil, think about it. God delights in us. I'm sure Brian and, and Sheila delight in their sons, right? They would do anything they can for their sons. Don't you think God delights in us even more? Our love for our children is nothing compared to God's love for us. God delights in us. Therefore, he's going to take care of us. Same way we delight in our children. Not help them and take care of them, right? So when times are tough, God is our only security. He's our rock. He's our fortress. Secondly, when days are dark, God is our only source of light. Or he's our shining light. 
Again at verse 29. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. When you go out at night, you usually have two sources of light. Flashlight or a lantern. What does a flashlight usually do? You know, it sort of um, uh, shows us what's ahead of us. Where a lamp shows us what's, what's around us. So the idea here is God's like a lantern. He gives us just enough light to see a few yards around us. And really, it's all we need, right? The light of the Lord to show us. Because if you're shining a flashlight way out ahead, you don't see what's in front of you. You may trip over something. But that lantern shows us what's in front of us. And God gives us that light. He gives us just enough light to see so we can take our next step. Look at Psalm 27, verse 1. Psalm 27, verse 1. Here we go. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? The answer is no one. Proverbs 21 pictures the light of redemption in contrast to the darkness of condemnation. He's the light of our salvation, our redemption. And he compares that with the darkness of our condemnation. Are you afraid? Is there fear in your life? God is our source of light. Look at Psalm 119. 105. 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my bath. God's word guides us. And look at verse 31. Go back. Look at verse 31. Here we see the light... According to Psalm 119 is what? God's word. Look at verse 31. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. It's proven. It's been tried. It's found flawless or sure. That word means to refine gold and silver. God's word has been tested and found true. You can count on God's promises. So when our days are dark, God is our only source of light. Hers is our shining light to guide us when we're afraid. Because you're on the dark, is afraid. Remember we had problems with the coyote? We were all afraid to go outside <laughs> at night. Hey, I walked the dog. Do you remember? She had walked the dog sometimes. And it was dark out there. I remember when we were off from California, and Amy, was, she was living here by herself. She was afraid. She says, dark outside. I said, honey, there's nothing out there but darkness. Nothing's going to hurt you. Well, yeah, I guess there was. <laughs> and I said, call up Ed. He'll come out with you. He'll go walk the dog with you. Or call, call Rick. They live close by. She braved and went out into the dark. But it's scary at night. So you always take a light with you. And God is our light. See, when our walk is weak, God is our only strength. Remember chapter 21, verse 15, David was weak from battle. Look at that again. 2 Samuel 21, verse 15. 
It says David became weary. David realized that God is his strength. He cannot do it on his own power. When David was young, he probably could. He could go out into battle and take care of all of his foes. But now he's getting older. He can't do that anymore. But he realizes God is his strength. Whatever turmoils we have to face, God gives us the strength to endure it and take care of it. And sometimes we become weak, don't we? Feel like giving up. Woe is me. You know, I can't do anything, but God is there to strengthen us. Like again, I can do all things through Christ who what? Remember how Paul, how he described his weaknesses? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember his thorn in the flesh? How many times did he ask God to take it away from him? Three times, and what did God answer each time? No, no, no. Now let's read that, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's see, if we want to read verse uh, 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most clearly, therefore, Paul says, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I'd rather boast about my weaknesses and what God is doing in my life than boast about my strengths and what I'm doing for God. What honors God more? Not what I'm doing for you, God, but what God is doing through me. And he goes on to say, Therefore I'm well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecution and difficulties for Christ's sake. When I am weak, then I am strong. It's all because of God's strength. Power of God that dwells in me, he says. So finally, when our future is foggy, God is our only solution. Remember in 2 Samuel, what God, chapter 7, God promised David? One of his descendants would sit on a throne for how long? Forever. And God may have kept that promise. And David knows that he could trust the future with God. God is our only hope for the future. God is going to protect him. God is going to provide for him. And God is going to keep his promises he made to him. And David believed that. In spite of all that David went through, there's no hint of bitterness. He's not resentful towards God. He doesn't blame God. And he can end his life of turmoil with a praise on his lips, a song of praise. There's no grumblings, no regrets, no unfulfilled dreams. This happens to many older people. They get older. They haven't fulfilled their dreams. There's regrets. And David says, with God, there's no regrets. So David promises us in this song from both his experience and his faith that God will show loving kindness to him and to us. So is your future foggy? Yeah. <laughs> Are you unsure of tomorrow? You know what's going to happen tomorrow. Parts of our future will always be a mystery, but we can count on God's promises. God will see us through. Trouble is, Christians have trouble believing that God is their only solution. Christians have trouble believing that God is their only source of light. They have trouble believing that God is their only source of security. They have trouble believing that God is their strength and their turmoil. I don't know, but what we as Christians sometimes, we try everything else and God last. Why is that? Oh, I got physical problems. Better go see my doctor. No, doctors help, but can we trust in the Lord? 
Financial problems, you know, we trust in the Lord. One commentator says, it seems though Christians automatically try everything else except the Lord. Yet he still waits for us patiently, waiting for us to come to him when we need him. Swindoll, his commentary on this passage, ends with a great illustration. I like this illustration. It's about Disneyland. That's why. The happiest place on earth, those shimmering words arched over the entrance to Disneyland. Invite thousands of people every day to shed their troubles like heavy overcoats and escape to a land of sunshine and storybook adventures. Our hearts long for a place like Disneyland, a place where the flowers bloom year-round, dreams come true precisely on schedule, and children of all races sing it's a small world in perfect harmony. Now, where we live, Main Street is littered with trash and lined with boarded-up windows. In Disneyland, Main Street, on the other hand, offers parades and popcorn, huggable cartoon characters and horse-drawn carriages rides, sparkling lights and dazzling fireworks. What a great place to live. Right? It's great. Ever been to Disneyland? It's a great place to go. I can't wait to go again. This is the first year we haven't gone in a long time. I'm tempted to go at Christmas time. Becky says, now we're going to go see the baby. Joe me and I go to Disneyland for a long time until the baby's old enough to go. So we'll see. But it's true. <clears throat> he goes on to say, unfortunately, we can only visit Disneyland. Each night when the park closes down, the lights go out, the music ends, and the magic melts like a half-eaten ice cream cone. A Disneyland adventure may help us forget our problems for a while, but it doesn't solve them. True. A day at fishing, a day at the ballpark, a day whatever is your favorite thing to do is great. It helps you forget your troubles. But by the end of the day, you come home, and guess what? Those troubles are still there. Even during the Great Depression, people had money to go to the movies. Hollywood still produced movies. It got them to forget about their troubles. For a quarter or a nickel or a dime, whatever it cost back then, they'd go to the movies and be entertained for a few hours. But the reality is when we come home, the problems are still there. Thankfully, he says, God gives us more than a magic kingdom. His kingdom offers us solid hope for a real world. He meets us in the panic and stress of our everyday life, where the tigers are real and the roller coaster rides don't always end safely. Right? Thank God that he takes care of us during the midst of our turmoils and troubles and strife. We can be thankful that God provides for us. He protects us. You heard of Matthew Henry. He's a commentator. He was robbed once. I don't know if you've ever been robbed. The guy put a gun at you and robbed you. That was a harrowing experience. But he could be thankful that he was robbed. This, he was thankful for four things. Number one, first, let me be thankful because I was never robbed before. Second, because though they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took all my all, it wasn't much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Those are four things to be thankful for. Think of your turmoils the past year. We can be thankful for them because they help us to grow. We're diamond in the rough, Roman tells us. And God is chipping away the edges to make us like Christ, is he not? So even during the midst of our turmoils, you may be going through a big turmoil right now, 
God will take care of your needs. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And Father, we just pray, Lord, that you will help us to see this light at the end of the tunnel. We're going through these turmoils and troubles of our life. Knowing that, Lord, as you spared David, you spare us. You deliver us, provide for our needs, protect us. We're just so thankful for these things, Lord. Pray we'll think about these things as we go to our dinner and throughout the week as we meet with family and friends on Thanksgiving Day. And we're truly thankful for what you've accomplished in our lives. And we do ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, we get to sing and I get to lead you. <laughs> Hope you're thankful for that. And stand, turn off the mic. I'm, I'm glad for the thing here, too. God is so good, we all know this, right? We could sing it closed eyes, right? But we're not. You can watch the hand. We're going to sing God is so good, all four stanzas. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. He cares for me. He cares for me. He cares for me. He's so good to me. I love him so. I love him so. I love him so. He's so good to me. I praise his name. I praise his name. I praise his name. He's so good to me. Don't we serve a good and great gracious God? Amen for that. We're glad you're here. Stay for the dinner. And we're going to start eating as soon as we get over and get everything ready. So um, check. We just missed us in prayer, please.